Today I'll be reading The Opinion of the Court in Counterman v. Colorado, decided June 27, 2023. Justice Kagan delivered the opinion of the court in which Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Alito, Kavanaugh, and Jackson joined. Justice Sotomayor filed an opinion concurring in part and concurring in the judgment, in which Justice Gorsuch joined as to parts 1, 2, 3a, and 3b. Justice Thomas filed a dissenting opinion. Justice Barrett filed a dissenting opinion in which Justice Thomas joined. True threats of violence are outside the bounds of First Amendment protection and punishable as crimes. Today, we consider a criminal conviction for communications falling within that historically unprotected category. The question presented is whether the First Amendment still requires proof that the defendant had some subjective understanding of the threatening nature of his statements. We hold that it does, but that a mental state of recklessness is sufficient. The state must show that the defendant consciously disregarded a substantial risk that his communications would be viewed as threatening violence. The state need not prove any more demanding form of subjective intent to threaten another. Part 1 from 2014 to 2016, petitioner Billy Counterman sent hundreds of Facebook messages to C.W., a local singer and musician. The two had never met, and C.W. never responded. In fact, she repeatedly blocked Counterman. But each time, he created a new Facebook account and resumed his contacts. Some of his messages were utterly prosaic. Good morning, sweetheart. I'm going to the store. Would you like anything? Except that they were coming from a total stranger. Others suggested that Counterman might be surveilling CW. He asked, Was that you in the white jeep? Referenced a fine display with your partner and noted a couple of physical sightings. And most critically, a number expressed anger at CW and envisaged harm befalling her. Quote, fuck off permanently, unquote. Quote, staying in cyber life is going to kill you, unquote. And you're not being good for human relations. Die. The messages put C.W. in fear and upended her daily existence. She believed that Counterman was threatening her life, was very fearful that he was following her, and was afraid she would get hurt. As a result, she had a lot of trouble sleeping and suffered from severe anxiety. She stopped walking alone, declined social engagements, and canceled some of her performances, though doing so caused her financial strain. Eventually, C.W. decided that she had to contact the authorities. 
Colorado charged countermen under a statute making it unlawful to repeatedly make any form of communication with another person in a manner that would cause a reasonable person to suffer serious emotional distress and does cause that person to suffer serious emotional distress. The only evidence the state proposed to introduce at trial were his Facebook messages. Counterman moved to dismiss the charge on First Amendment grounds, arguing that his messages were not true threats and therefore could not form the basis of a criminal prosecution. In line with Colorado law, the trial court assessed the true threat issue using an objective, reasonable person standard. Under that standard, the state had to show that a reasonable person would have viewed the Facebook messages as threatening. By contrast, the state had no need to prove that countermen had any kind of subjective intent to threaten CW. The court decided, after considering the totality of the circumstances, that countermen's statements rose to the level of a true threat. Because that was so, the court ruled, the First Amendment posed no bar to prosecution. The court accordingly sent the case to the jury, which found Countermen guilty as charged. The Colorado Court of Appeals affirmed. Countermen had urged the court to hold that the First Amendment required the state to show that he was aware of the threatening nature of his statements. Relying on its precedent, the court turned the request down. It declined today to say that a speaker's subjective intent to threaten is necessary under the First Amendment to procure a conviction for threatening communications. Using the established objective standard, the court then approved the trial court's ruling that Counterman's messages were true threats and so were not protected by the First Amendment. The Colorado Supreme Court denied review. Courts are divided about, one, whether the First Amendment requires proof of a defendant's subjective mindset in true threats cases, and two, if so, what mens rea standard is sufficient. We therefore granted certiorari. Part 2 True threats of violence, everyone agrees, lie outside the bounds of the First Amendment's protection, and a statement can count as such a threat based solely on its objective content. The first dispute here is about whether the First Amendment nonetheless demands that the state in a true threats case prove that the defendant was aware in some way of the threatening nature of his communications. Colorado argues that there is no such requirement. Counterman contends that there is one, based mainly on the likelihood that the absence of such mens rea requirement will chill protected, non-threatening speech. Counterman's view, we decide today, is the more consistent with our precedent. To combat the kind of chill he references, our decisions have often insisted on protecting even some historically unprotected speech through the adoption of a subjective mental state element. 
we follow the same path today, holding that the state must prove in true threats cases that the defendant had some understanding of his statement's threatening character. The second issue here concerns what precise mens rea standard suffices for the First Amendment purpose at issue. Again guided by our precedent, we hold that a recklessness standard is enough. Given that a subjective standard here shields speech not independently entitled to protection and, indeed, posing real dangers, we do not require that the state prove the defendant had any more specific intent to threaten the victim. Section A From 1791 to the present, the First Amendment has permitted restrictions upon the content of speech in a few limited areas. These historic and traditional categories are long familiar to the bar and, perhaps too, the general public. One is incitement, statements directed at producing imminent lawless action, and likely to do so. Another is defamation, false statements of fact harming another's reputation. Still a third is obscenity, valueless material appealing to the prurient interest and describing sexual conduct in a patently offensive way. This court has often described those historically unprotected categories of speech as being of such slight social value as a step to truth that any benefit that may be derived from them is clearly outweighed by the social interest in their proscription. True threats of violence is another historically unprotected category of communications. The true in that term distinguishes what is at issue from jests, hyperbole, or other statements that when taken in context do not convey a real possibility that violence will follow. Say, quote, I am going to kill you for showing up late, unquote. True threats are serious expressions conveying that a speaker means to commit an act of unlawful violence. Whether the speaker is aware of and intends to convey the threatening aspect of the message is not part of what makes a statement a threat, as this court recently explained. The existence of a threat depends not on the mental state of the author, but on what the statement conveys to the person on the other end. When the statement is understood as a true threat, all the harms that have long made threats unprotected naturally follow. True threats subject individuals to fear of violence and to the many kinds of disruption that fear engenders. The facts of this case well illustrate how. Yet the First Amendment may still demand a subjective mental state requirement, shielding some true threats from liability. The reason relates to what is often called a chilling effect. Prohibitions on speech have the potential to chill or deter speech outside their boundaries. A speaker may be unsure about the side of a line on which his speech falls. 
Or he may worry that the legal system will err and count speech that is permissible as instead not. Or he may simply be concerned about the expense of becoming entangled in the legal system. The result is self-censorship of speech that could not be proscribed, a cautious and restrictive exercise of First Amendment freedoms, and an important tool to prevent that outcome to stop people from steering wide of the unlawful zone is to condition liability on the state's showing of a culpable mental state. Such a requirement comes at a cost. It will shield some otherwise proscribable, here threatening, speech because the state cannot prove what the defendant thought. But the added element reduces the prospect of chilling fully protected expression. As this court has noted, the requirement lessens the hazard of self-censorship by compensating for the law's uncertainties. Or, said a bit differently, by reducing an honest speaker's fear that he may accidentally or erroneously incur liability, a mens rea requirement provides breathing room for more valuable speech. That kind of strategic protection features in our precedent concerning the most prominent categories of historically unprotected speech. Defamation is the best-known and best-theorized example. False and defamatory statements of fact, we have held, have no constitutional value. Yet, a public figure cannot recover for the injury such a statement causes unless the speaker acted with knowledge that it was false or with reckless disregard of whether it was false or not. That rule is based on fear of self-censorship, the worry that without such a subjective mental state requirement, the uncertainties and expense of litigation will deter speakers from making even truthful statements. The First Amendment, we have concluded, requires that we protect some falsehood in order to protect speech that matters. The same idea arises in the law respecting obscenity and the incitement to unlawful conduct. Like threats, incitement inheres in particular words used in particular contexts. Its harm can arise even when a clueless speaker fails to grasp his expressions, nature, and consequence. But still, the First Amendment precludes punishment, whether civil or criminal, unless the speaker's words were intended, not just likely, to produce imminent disorder. That rule helps prevent a law from deterring mere advocacy of illegal acts, a kind of speech falling within the First Amendment's core. And, for a similar reason, the First Amendment demands proof of a defendant's mindset to make out an obscenity case. Obscenity is obscenity, whatever the purveyor's mental state but we have repeatedly recognized that punishment depends on a vital element of scienter, often described as the defendant's awareness of the character and nature of the material he distributed. The rationale should by now be familiar. 
Yes, obscene speech and writings are not protected, but punishing their distribution without regard to scienter would have the collateral effect of inhibiting protected expression. Given the ambiguities inherent in the definition of obscenity, the First Amendment requires proof of scienter to avoid the hazard of self-censorship. The same reasoning counsels in favor of requiring a subjective element in a true threats case. This court again must consider the prospect of chilling, non-threatening expression, given the ordinary citizen's predictable tendency to steer wide of the unlawful zone. The speaker's fear of mistaking whether a statement is a threat, his fear of the legal system getting that judgment wrong, his fear in any event of incurring legal costs, all those may lead him to swallow words that are in fact not true threats. Some 50 years ago, Justice Marshall made the point when reviewing a true threats prosecution arguably involving only political hyperbole. See Rogers v. United States, 1975. The court in Rogers reversed the conviction on other grounds, but Justice Marshall focused on the danger of deterring non-threatening speech. An objective standard turning only on how reasonable observers would construe a statement in context would make people give threats a wide berth. And so use of that standard would discourage the uninhibited, robust, and wide-open debate that the First Amendment is intended to protect. The reasoning, and indeed some of the words, came straight from this court's decisions insisting on a subjective element in other unprotected speech cases, whether involving defamation, incitement, or obscenity. No doubt, the approach in all of those cases has a cost. Even as it lessens chill of protected speech, it makes prosecution of otherwise proscribable and often dangerous communications harder. And the balance between those two effects may play out differently in different contexts, as the next part of this opinion discusses. But the ban on an objective standard remains the same, lest true threats prosecutions chill too much protected, non-threatening expression. Section B. The next question concerns the type of subjective standard the First Amendment requires. The law of mens rea offers three basic choices. Purpose is the most culpable level in the standard mental state hierarchy and the hardest to prove. A person acts purposefully when he consciously desires a result. So here, when he wants his words to be received as threats. Next down, though not often distinguished from purpose, is knowledge. A person acts knowingly when he is aware that a result is practically certain to follow. So here, when he knows to a practical certainty that others will take his words as threats. A greater gap separates those two from recklessness. 
a person acts recklessly in the most common formulation when he consciously disregards a substantial and unjustifiable risk that the conduct will cause harm to another. That standard involves insufficient concern with risk rather than awareness of impending harm. But still, recklessness is morally culpable conduct involving a deliberate decision to endanger another. In the threats context, it means that a speaker is aware that others could regard his statements as threatening violence and delivers them anyway. Among those standards, recklessness offers the right path forward. We have so far mostly focused on the constitutional interest in free expression and on the correlative need to take into account threat prosecution's chilling effects. But the precedent we have relied on has always recognized and insisted on accommodating the competing value in regulating historically unprotected expression. Here, as we have noted, that value lies in protecting against the profound harms to both individuals and society that attend true threats of violence, as evidenced in this case. The injury associated with those statements caused history long ago to place them outside the First Amendment's bounds. When, despite that judgment, we require use of a subjective mental state standard, we necessarily impede some true threat prosecutions. And as we go up the subjective mens rea ladder, that imposition on states' capacity to counter true threats becomes still greater and, presumably, with diminishing returns for protected expression. In advancing past recklessness, we make it harder for a state to substantiate the needed inferences about mens rea, absent, as is usual, direct evidence. And of particular importance, we prevent states from convicting morally culpable defendants. For reckless defendants have done more than make a bad mistake— they have consciously accepted a substantial risk of inflicting serious harm. Using a recklessness standard also fits with the analysis in our defamation decisions. As noted earlier, the court there adopted a recklessness rule applicable in both civil and criminal contexts as a way of accommodating competing interests. In the more than half-century in which that standard has governed, few have suggested that it needs to be higher. In other words, that still more First Amendment breathing space is required. And we see no reason to offer greater insulation to threats than to defamation. The societal interests in countering the former are at least as high and the protected speech near the borderline of true threats is, if anything, further from the First Amendment's central concerns than the chilled speech in Sullivan-type cases, i.e. truthful, reputation-damaging statements about public officials and figures.
It is true that our incitement decisions demand more, but the reason for that demand is not present here. When incitement is at issue, we have spoken in terms of specific intent, presumably equivalent to purpose or knowledge. In doing so, we recognized that incitement to disorder is commonly a hair's breadth away from political advocacy, and particularly from strong protests against the government and prevailing social order. Such protests gave rise to all the cases in which the court demanded a showing of intent, and the court decided those cases against a resonant historical backdrop. The court's failure, in an earlier era, to protect mere advocacy of force or lawbreaking from legal sanction. A strong intent requirement was, and remains, one way to guarantee history was not repeated. It was a way to ensure that efforts to prosecute incitement would not bleed over, either directly or through a chilling effect, to dissenting political speech at the First Amendment's core. But the potency of that protection is not needed here. For the most part, the speech on the other side of the true threat's boundary line, as compared with the advocacy addressed in our incitement decisions, is neither so central to the theory of the First Amendment nor so vulnerable to government prosecutions. It is not just that our incitement decisions are distinguishable. It is more that they compel the use of a distinct standard here. That standard, again, is recklessness. It offers enough breathing space for protected speech without sacrificing too many of the benefits of enforcing laws against true threats. As with any balance, something is lost on both sides. The rule we adopt today is neither the most speech-protective nor the most sensitive to the dangers of true threats. But in declining one of those two alternative paths, something more important is gained. Not having it all, because that is impossible, but having much of what is important on both sides of the scale. Part 3. It is time to return to Counterman's case, though only a few remarks are necessary. Counterman, as described above, was prosecuted in accordance with an objective standard. The state had to show only that a reasonable person would understand his statements as threats. It did not have to show any awareness on his part that the statements could be understood that way. For the reason stated, that is a violation of the First Amendment. We accordingly vacate the judgment of the Colorado Court of Appeals and remand the case for further proceedings not inconsistent with this opinion. It is so ordered.
we've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.